I'm just not sure how many restaurateurs and chefs are going to keep up with, you know, the, the thought of just preparing food and then sort of wordlessly handing it to somebody to hand to somebody else. And that's the, the whole exchange. I mean, I think some chefs thrive on seeing people's faces. This is Food at a Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. You're a food reporter who travels the city doing on-the-scene video at restaurants. And suddenly, you have to shelter at home. That's what Steve Delinsky faces as a TV personality, doing segments from his kitchen. I spoke with the ABC7 on-air reporter and Pizza City USA author and podcaster about two and a half weeks ago. We talked about the world of food and how it was getting through the coronavirus era. Normally, the podcast would have gone up within a few days. Then the world outside the world of food blew up, and this podcast needed to look at that for a while. But the world of food still matters to people like us, and the questions of what it will look like when all this is over are still worth contemplating. So this episode talks about the questions that didn't go away during the last week or two. But first, please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Now, live from a Chicago not that long ago, here's Steve Delinsky. So you moved into a smaller place. Did you get both your kids immediately home and are you all packed in there now? Yep, we moved um, right around Thanksgiving, and we had this great setup, this three-bedroom condo, lots of space, and then in March, it all changed, and uh, my kids came home, which, you know, as a parent of a a 22-year-old and a 19-year-old, you're like, this is great. I get to hang out with my kids more, and then after about the 15th time you're doing the dishes in the week, (laughs) and things are left out on the sink, and you know your refrigerator starts emptying faster you're like wait a second <laughs> so it's 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 been a blessing and a curse yeah i'm in the same situation mine are just a year behind both 21 and 18 and i mean they're they're good about stuff particularly if they're told directly to do it <laughs> but i mean at least they walk the dog on their own but uh yeah it's a lot of togetherness. We, you know, we kind of all know by this point when to just steer clear of the other one. Uh, yeah, although you know, ours and ours is going to be ending soon because, like, my son is going to St. Louis this week to spend a few weeks with his band, uh, recording and working out of their home uh, down there in the suburbs. And then he he thinks he's got an internship lined up back here, the end of June, which is great, uh, which is a couple days a week. Um, so we're going to miss him for a couple of weeks. And then my daughter is going to be moving to Amsterdam in about a month because she got into an MBA program there. And so she'll be she'll be moving there for a full year. Wow. Yeah, my older one, unfortunately, had to come home from Northern Ireland about a month into his study abroad. Yeah, I heard that on your previous show. That's That's a shame. Yeah. I mean, at least he's... You know, he's he's philosophical about it. He accepts it. It's not like, could you do the dishes? Yeah, I'll do them from Northern Ireland because I'm not yeah. there now. You know, there's nothing like that. So, it's a, Everybody's been making sacrifices. And I just, you know, I keep 
reminding myself, you know, it, it, it's a lot worse for a lot of other people. Yeah. And I hate to complain about anything, um, whether it's personal or professional. I just, you know, we're just doing the best we can. And there are people out of work and people dying. And it just, you got to have some perspective these days. Exactly. Exactly. So you've been doing uh, segments from your kitchen. I guess maybe that was one blessing of moving is that you had an uncluttered new kitchen as opposed to a kitchen you'd lived in for 20 years. For yeah. Your I don't, I, and I don't think, I mean, we could have done it of course in the old place too, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's great. It's like, it's one of the reasons we moved to the condo was because we had this big kitchen that was wide open and a big Island and decent lighting. And uh, you know, I, but I still own my uh, led lights and I set those up and, um, but yeah, I, I literally have gone back to square one in terms of what I did when I started out in the business like 30 years ago and everything myself. I mean, I'm, I'm engineer and editor and shooter and reporter and I mean, literally one man band the whole way. Yeah, I was watching your uh, pieces, uh, your piece on the Southside Donut places. You know, at first I thought, well, maybe he's just using old footage. But then suddenly I saw people in masks and stuff like that. So how does that work? Uh, you have one one crew member who goes, or it's me. I found online a uh, like a boom pole. So I was using a shotgun mic, and I could hold it kind of in the general direction of the subject. Uh, and be about five feet away. But now I'm going to, I just bought a pole. So I'll be able to keep six feet plus away and hold the shotgun mic in front of the subject. Um, but yeah, it takes me a lot longer because I'm doing everything by myself in the field. I'm setting up light um, and just trying to shoot it in a way that, you know, everybody's safe and wearing a mask. And um, the only time I take a mask off now is if, you know, there's nobody within 15 feet of me. Or I'm outside. It's just been a, it's a learning process. Obviously, I'm getting better at it, I think. But um, I, I've literally been doing the solo thing since um, since it all started in the middle of March. Yeah, well, I mean, it looks good. Your B-roll, you know, had me unsure if it was new or old. So, yeah, oh, good. I mean, it, it looks nice. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm just I'm using the same prosumer Canon camera that I've had for years. Um, I, you know, the interesting thing is I'm not shooting it in 1080, um, for the geeks in the year audience, I'm shooting it at 720p, uh, because, but it's apparently still broadcast quality, but if I were to shoot it in 1080p, they'd have to down convert it back at the station. Uh, so, and, and it's a li- and actually it's nice on my end. Cause I'm actually just, I'm dumping it into my Mac and then you know, editing it from there. And it would take a lot longer to ingest uh, something at 1080 because it's it's a lot more information and I don't have you know like five terabytes right and I don't have a huge <laughs> RAM in my computer and it's like a home computer so what I do every week is I literally delete everything that I'd shot the previous week that's in the computer so it's gone for good and it just exists on an external drive as a finished story but I don't save any of this raw video now because I just don't have the, the capability. I don't have the storage. Yeah, you know, I was going to shoot all these interviews for this book project. And now, you know, just as soon as this all shut down, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm really going to go barge in on old people to interview them about the 70s and, and 80s in Chicago food. Uh, right. you know, it's just not, not going to happen. So I'm just doing... I'm doing Skype interviews like this um, with people and my dreams of making it into some sort of TV thing at the end will just have to be on hold. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are definitely safer ways um, to do this than you know than other. You can't obviously clip a mic on anybody, and you can't you know you don't want to touch anybody and get super close to them. And mm-hmm. so that's why I, I just bought this pole, and I think it's going to work out. In fact, we just did some testing on um, over the weekend. On Friday, we did a graduation ceremony for my daughter and my nephew. Um, on the suburbs at my um, in-laws house and I set up a stand and a shotgun mic and I was able to record you know what people were saying and keep a really good distance as long as I had a long cable so that's kind of my new normal now is I'll show up somewhere and I'll just do the interview and I'll be like 10 feet away from them so it's, I think we're all good on that on that front yeah 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 no I just think in terms of doing like the the Netflixy very pretty um, yeah. thing. I mean, I got to do that with the clip on mics and everything. So it's just not going to happen right now. Yeah. And I don't know when it will happen. I mean, this is the scary thing. Like I keep, I thought for a couple of weeks in March, like, okay, you know, we're going to get through this. It's going to be a temporary uh, delay and, and this is going to be inconvenient for a few months, but by the summer we'll be back. And I just, man, I do not see the light in the tunnel right now. I know people talk about Oh, March, May 29th, no, no, no. And then phase four is the end of June. And I just don't see people going to restaurants with confidence for a while. Yeah, no, that's how I feel. I mean, I I want them to have the chance to try it, but I don't want to be the one who tries it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really uncertain time. And I, um, I mean, I, you know, my job, (laughs) it's like, it's week to week. I mean, I feel like, I guess it's good. It keeps us on our toes, but like, you know, I, I, every week I pitch my stories now to my bosses. It used to be where I would just send out kind of a mass email to our station. I'd say, like, here's what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of weeks or for the next month. These are the stories you're to expect. And now every Sunday or Monday I, I pitch these two story ideas I've got. Um, and I feel like, you know, the cub reporter again and hopefully my assignment manager, my news director will say, yes, go go do that. And then I do them. And then I turn them in four or five days later. So um, I don't really know what you know, when this is going to end. So what do they turn down? What have they not wanted particularly to do? Well, I wanted to do some cocktail stuff at home. I did one cocktail piece early on, on how to make a daiquiri. Cause I thought, you know, I had been hearing that Benny's business was up and I tried to talk to somebody from Benny's and they did not want to talk on the record, which was kind of interesting. Um, but I, from everything I've heard, you know, people are consuming more at home and, you know, you can buy a kit every now and then from uh, three dots in a dash, but that's not sustainable to buy that every week. There, you're buying a whole bottle, and so I said, "You know, listen, you've got if you've got stuff at home, and it's easy to make a simple syrup. It's easy to squeeze some limes. Um, I'm going to show people every now and then how to do cocktails." And so I I did that, and then a few weeks later, I wanted to do an old fashioned, and they said, "You know, maybe maybe not do the cocktails." Um, just think about, you know, I, I'm thinking much more about my audience. I know we were taught this in J school, like, you know, who's, who's the ultimate consumer of your stuff. And, you know, I thought about it with the feed when we did the podcast, I think about it every week with the pizza podcast. I think about it with ABC and they're very different audiences. And so when you think about like the median income in our regions, about 60, 65,000 a year family median household income. Um, yeah, I'm probably not going to do the Alinea 15th anniversary right. <laughs> menu, even though, even though at 59, 50 bucks a head, I think it's a, it's a great deal and it was really delicious and unique, but that's not appropriate probably to do for my TV audience. So you know, maybe, you know, doing, 
a, an old-fashioned recipe, you know, where you've got to make this and you've got to buy a bottle of Buffalo Trace. That, that may not be applicable to, to our viewers in Batavia. So I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to that. And so that, that informs how I pitch stories. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's a good time to talk about democratic food, you know, populist food. And I feel we're all kind of obsessing. It's like, oh, you can get Elska. Well, I was really excited. I got Elska the very first week. Now you can get pho from Smith. Well, you can also get pho on Argyle Street. Maybe it'd be nice to patronize those guys a little. Yeah, yeah I know. That's, like I say, I live in the West, West Town now. We're only a 10-minute walk probably from Royster. And I have not gotten that fried chicken thing because, you know, I've got four adults here plus tax and tip and i by the way i do not do any third-party delivery i pick it up myself or i don't do it and it's going to be 125 130 bucks for four fried chicken dinners for my family of four that's just not sustainable either because all a lot of my freelance stuff is dried up um and so you know income is not what it used to be um it's not it doesn't make sense to do take takeout from these places in the west loop all the time so you know I think about that again, back to the donut thing you talked about, which was my story over the weekend. Like I saw a huge boom in response and comments and feedback. And, you know, it's, that's probably typical in normal times. You know, if I do barbecue or fried chicken or burgers or pizza or donuts, but man, even more so now I've noticed a huge increase in interest when I do something that when you talk about the democratic food, you know, something really baseline that everybody can appreciate. And, you know, I'm going to do a pizza story next weekend. Surprise, surprise, a little different angle, but it's still going to be a pizza story. And so, um, and I just read something in the times today, but there's a woman who's got a bunch of Papa John's franchises. Her business is up 80%. So, you know, pizza, everybody can agree on pizza. You may not agree on, you know, when to reopen the economy, but you can agree that, you know, you love pizza. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I always remind myself, not that I pay any attention to it, for all the precious things that I write about, by far the most popular things I ever wrote were Italian beef lists for Thrillist. You oh, know? Yeah. I mean, they, they drew, yeah. you know, like the, the original one, when they were still displaying the stats on the site, had like 200,000 hits or something like that. You know, I had, I had wow. the hits of a mid-sized town in the Midwest, you know. And so, so, right. And so, you, and so you can't do that kind of story every week. But then doesn't part of you say to yourself, well, geez, if I did something that focused on this, it would be a hit. People yeah, would yeah. spread it and share it and comment on it. And I'd get advertisers and end of story. But of course, as a someone who's creative and as a writer, you don't want to just pigeonhole yourself like that into one thing all the time. Yeah, you can't do the same thing all the time. And also, I mean, we both know the problems with lists. We've talked about this before. Is that they just feed feed on each other? You know, they're they're yeah. the the top ten things I saw on the last top ten list I looked at. Yeah, and I haven't done a top five pizza thing in two or three years. You know, I mean, certainly it's just not. I don't care. Yeah. yeah. I just, I know people would, you know, people love that and there's a debate that ensues, but I personally just don't care to talk about my top five anything anymore. Yeah. Well, and of course I have the food under 99, although I probably won't this year. Um, But, you know, it's very much not designed for you to take the, the number, 
the numbers in the listing at all very seriously to right. say, hmm, so 41 is really better than 42, huh? You know, they're nothing like right. each other. They're just there. You know, sometimes sometimes things get their place because the copy will end at the bottom of the page rather than extending one line over. So, okay, that one goes here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so. well, yeah, well, I noticed, I, I, I did notice, you know, and uh, that Eater will say something when they do a list, they'll say these are listed geographically or something. Well, I did that, you know, Thrillist, I did that with hot dogs once because I just thought there's no way to decide what the 10 best Vienna beef hot dogs of the same weight per pound cooked in the same way are, you know, which one is better than the next one. So I just did the best ones by area because that makes sense. What's what's the what's the best hot dog close to you when you are here? You know, that's a logical thing. Yeah, Don't you think not to go too deep on hot dogs for a second but like when people talk about the best hot dogs and they've asked me like why don't you do a hot dog compendium or something that's so different than beef or pizza or something else that you could do sort of side by side like the the kindlesberger comparisons because hot dogs are all the same i mean unless you're buying from you know there, there used to be best kosher and there was red hot chicago they're still around i know there's vienna beef but like 98.7 percent of the hot dogs in chicago land come from Vienna beef. They're just different sizes. Some are going to be grilled. Some are going to be steamed, but all the condiments are pretty much the same. All the Rosen's poppy seeds buns are the same. I mean, I don't understand how there's a comparison of hot dogs. Yeah, no, you're, you're definitely um, going off the, the kind of the incidental things. I mean, one, is it skinless or natural casing? Are the fries, you know, fresh fried or they come out of frozen out of a box? Sure. Um, you know, is the place vaguely charming and amusing or is it kind of creepy and feels like <laughs> criminals hang out there? You know, right, I mean, that's right. that's what you're judging much more than the actual hot dog. Because, yeah, again, I mean, the ingredients are right. all the same. Right. Right. I'm glad you agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so Hot Dog City USA is not coming from Steve Delinsky? No, never. Never. Yeah. But well, I do. I mean, I do like sending people to, you know, to various places when they come from out of town. But I'm not going to give you I'll never give you a top 10 hot dog list, I don't think. Yeah. What's your number one hot dog list? What, what's the one you'd recommend the most to people? Well, I, you know, I like Superdog. Just the history, um, the pickled green tomato as opposed to the red, mostly out of season tomato. Um, a little bit little different flavor combo. And the fact they don't buy from Vienna, they have somebody else make that dog for them, which they don't, they don't say where, but, um, I just like the whole, I like the crinkle fries. The, it's the whole package, as you'd say, you know, the, everything there. I yeah, like no, it's, the atmosphere is so charming. Yeah. And I mean, to me, the best that, you know, you'd pull in on a warm Saturday in the summer and there's like two or three old cars in the parking lot because if you own an old car you own a a beautiful old chevy or something where else are you gonna go than super dog you're gonna get yep, out there yeah. we went we went yesterday believe it or not oh we yeah went yesterday <laughs> we took a walk in the forest preserves and then you know we were with my daughter and she's like we stopped at super dog on the way home i'm like yeah i'll go get a shake and a whoopski dog and surprise why not that is the original curbside carryout i mean you're going back 70 years yeah. and they were doing it before it was cool and it's the only place that hasn't changed at all since coronavirus started. Right, right. Yeah, he said, you know, like we saw Don Drucker there, the owner, yesterday. And he was walking. I mean, the, first of all, 2.30 in the afternoon, full parking lot. 
He said they used to do majority of the business out the front window and then have about 40%, you know, with the car hops. Now it's about, you know, obviously 80% with the car hops. And so they're having trouble getting all the food out in a timely fashion. They're getting better at the mechanics of producing the food and, and, and placing orders, but it's harder to get out to the cars. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's funny that that's the kind of place I wouldn't go on Saturday or Sunday now because every day is Saturday or Sunday. So you might as well go on Tuesday and maybe it'll be a yep. little less busy. Yeah. But, you know, he said that people are and probably because Nick uh, Kindlesberger wrote about it early on. Um, people are either rediscovering it or discovering it for the first time, which is kind of sad. If you lived in Chicago all these years, I mean, and you never went to Superdog. That's like, what a shame. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, you know, I read once that something like 30% of Chicagoans have never been to the lake. What? Yeah. Yeah. Part of this is socioeconomic. You know, I was on, I was a board advisor for Embark, which was a, organization that would get kids from the inner city and from Inglewood to go to the lake, to go to a, a skyscraper. They'd never been in an elevator. Um, and you're just stunned at how many people who grew up in the city of Chicago have not seen the lake. You know, what a shame. No, it's true. And I mean, it, to a certain extent, I mean, my laughing at that is middle-class privilege. I mean, it's the idea yep. that you're going to take a day and you're going to get on a bus and ride it east for a long time and then you're going to be at this beach and you don't know what it's going to be like when you get there and what the reception for you is going to be or anything else. You know, if you grow up with that, you do it. If you don't grow up with that, you don't do it. Yeah, I know. Our, our city still segregated in 2020 but quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about, yeah, get, getting out. So you went to a forest preserve up there. My kids and I will drive out to like Kane County or somewhere like that because what do we have but time? So who cares yeah. about driving 45 minutes? And tromp around some odd little forest preserve or, you know, bit of prairie that was somebody's farm or things like that. And, uh, you know, and then find whatever to eat around there. This has finally been my chance to kind of explore the Mexican food in like Elgin and Aurora and places like that. And I'm not sure that I found anything stunningly great, but you know, a lot of very good. I mean, if you want to, you want a good burrito, it's going to be better than El Famous Rey de Burrito, you know, that, that the bros go to on Friday night in the city. So are, you're right. Are, are you still, is that place that you wrote about out West still open now? I don't market? know. I need to find out what their plans are for this year. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that was a big crowded thing, and I don't know. This this is for listeners. This is the uh, Tiangi, uh, a Mexican market out in the western burbs near Elgin, um, that a guy developed just because he liked Mexican food. So it's kind of a flea market with a bunch of food stalls out there, but very crowded and not something that's going to be easy to do with social distancing or anything like that. I mean, it has the feel of like Maxwell Street in the old old days or something like yeah. that. So. Well, well, I liked, you know, because we, we live closer to downtown, and I probably wouldn't drive that far west to, to, or to go to Kane County, but I like the idea of going up north to this Cook County Preserve that really stretches quite a ways. I didn't realize how far north it went. I mean, it starts at, like, in Sauganash and Edge, Edgewater, Edgebrook, and then goes up to, um, like, Tower Road up in Winnetka or Wilmette, wherever that is. And so we, we got off the highway at Dempster, and then about half a mile north of Dempster, I think it was like Church in Austin is the area. There's a 
an entry point and we walked, I mean, there's a lot of bikers. It was almost a little bit too clogged, although lots of masks, which was good. But we walked south to Dempster and then, you know, because there's lots, there's Pequods and there's a bunch of Korean on Dempster, which is fantastic. There's a, a great, um, oh, what is it, Kimchi Jjigae place. And I cannot think of the name of it for the life of me, but it's on the south, it's on the north side of Dempster at about Ferris. Um, and then we walked north quite a ways past like a horse stable and um there's just a lot of interesting stuff over in, in morton grove i think and so um and i next time i would go back with the bike and just keep biking north and get off at one of those spots and go hit some asian food yeah no that's a great area and that, that actually uh you know to me it feels like what all this felt like when i was first doing it on chow hound and in the early days of lth where you know everyone did not come into a restaurant with their camera and take pictures gringos were not typically seen in korean restaurants and actually um john kessler and i went to one of those places up there i couldn't tell you the name i'd have to look on yelp and figure out which one it was but uh there was this guy and his kid, and they were eating Korean soup there, and we were eating it at another table. And when we were finished, um, we found out that he had paid our bill because he was just happy to see, you know, gringos in the Korean restaurant oh, eating his that food. Is so nice. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's it's like something from 15 years earlier because I just take it for granted now that, you know, we all know to go eat at, uh, you know, Sansu Gabsan or someone like that. But this was still the undiscovered world of Korean food in the Chicago area. Yeah, it's so cool. And I, I love the Tribune's Roundup. They did that sort of Koreatown part two up out in the suburbs, which I yeah. suspected for a while, but didn't quite put it all the put it all together that there's just a, such a concentration along Milwaukee Avenue. Yeah, no, I thought for a long time that, I mean, if you want to if you want to explore a really lively ethnic neighborhood ethnic food neighborhood just heading up Milwaukee through Niles and all that i mean there's so many different there's you know there's middle eastern there's polish and there's just tons of korean up there and yep, yep. it was you know for Kessler who's from Atlanta and has been you know skeptical as you know of the of the Chicago dining scene, it felt to him like Atlanta because you have to drive to get to get to it. It's not just down your street uh, in the yeah, city. Although, although, and I've only been to Atlanta a handful of times, but I mean that's a city where the average commute is like thirty miles, and people are used to getting in a car there. And yet, when people come to Chicago, for some reason, they expect you know everything to be within five miles of downtown. And so, I just I know what John's saying, but I think to what we're getting at is that there's just so much interesting eating that's a 15 mile drive from the loop, you know, to get to Hoffman Estates. Like I, I hate make what the exit is where medieval times is. But when you get off that exit and you go South a little bit, all those strip malls, it reminds me of suburban Toronto, which is a, you know, it's a 20 mile drive. Yeah. Yeah. Or down to like Bridgeview and that area for Middle Eastern food. Yep. That's so much richer yep. than, the, than the city is for, for that stuff. Right. And um, I ran into you and Kessler right. down on like 87th and Harlem. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was a classic moment. We're at uh, Uzi Corner. Um, yep. you know, Kessler and I are eating there and we realized that like the two other people in the restaurant are you and Titus for City. So, so food writers keeping Chicago's restaurants alive single handedly. <laughs> Of all the gin joints in all the world. 
<laughs> that was a great moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's an interesting thing is that it has shifted to the suburbs. You know, if you really want the stuff that's fresh out of immigration and most authentic to what's being you know, made in those countries, a lot of times it's in the suburbs. There are exceptions. I mean, Chinatown in the city is vibrant that way. But, mm-hmm. you know, you you can have Middle Eastern food that looks just like what they're serving in Turkey or Lebanon or where whatever. Or you can have the 15 years removed American style, Middle East, you know, Middle Eastern American within the city, much more likely. Well, and it, yeah, and it, it, it happens in other, like you look at New York in Chinatown versus Flushing, or you look in Vancouver, you know, the Chinatown versus Richmond, and look in Toronto, Chinatown versus, there's also a place called Richmond Hill and Scarborough. It's the same thing, and obviously it's the, the next wave of immigrant, the most recent wave of immigration, and they cannot afford to be downtown, and they, are, they move out to the suburbs because the schools are great for their kids, and they end up setting up their businesses out there. And you can do it for a lot less money and have a brand new building. And there's a lot more money out there. Um, it's just, it, it, I've seen it happen over and over in all these other cities. But for some reason, uh, people do not write about suburban Chicago very much. You know, I think if you looked at press, not to go back to Toronto and Vancouver, but people write about the, the outlying areas more than they do the inner city parts. You know, and you know my friend Suresh, who writes about sort of and does tours in suburban Toronto. I mean, there's just a wealth of stuff to write about and to visit. And he's got a whole tour business based on schlepping people out to these outer suburbs to eat well. But it hasn't really happened in Chicago. Yeah, no, I was in Vancouver last year. And yeah, the the Vancouver Chinatown in the city is kind of becoming a hipster area um, more than it really is a vibrant Chinese area. I mean, there are still groceries and, you know, food distribution businesses and stuff there, but you kind of see more hip restaurants. But meanwhile, yeah. yeah, Meanwhile, down in, uh, you know, rich, was it Richland that they call it? I can't even remember. Richmond, 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 um, which is totally just a suburb that popped off bare desert five minutes ago. But, there, you know, there's just one strip mall after another that's filled with different businesses. I mean, I had fantastic crispy pork at the place that shows up first thing in the David Chang, Seth Rogen, uh, Eating Chinese Food Stoned uh, series on Netflix. Great dim sum, great Shanghai noodles, all those things. And what's interesting to me is that somebody there i mean they've got a chamber of commerce that has a savvy marketing department and so they've got a well like a dumpling trail and stops on the dumpling trail on the color map that you can get and you can follow from one to the next and it's not terribly charming to do it because the area it's like walking down any highway with malls on it it's not very interesting on a pedestrian level it does have an you know an L elevated train going through it. If you get a day pass, you can just pop around from one to the next. That's not too bad. Um, but it's never going to be the charming old school neighborhood that the 
inner city Chinatown has been. Nevertheless, they've been very smart about making it accessible to people and telling people where to go and stuff like that. And you just don't see anything like that here. You know, you're not going to get the Indian Pakora Trail in <laughs> Schomburg in the same right. way. But, but I think, but I think Nick, our colleague, could set that up. I mean, he's the kind of person he's been to all those places, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, or, or you, you could do the uh, uh, the Worth slash Bridgeview, you know, thing. But th- you're right; there isn't a chamber of commerce down there that is savvy enough to sort of put together the trail. Um, but I, you know, I think people would do it. I and mean, people drive to the southwest side to go to Bidia Zaragoza, right, for one dish. You know, why not make a day of it? And and I think it'd be exciting to go to Hoffman Estates and hit like six, you know essential places yeah i went to that uh what, what was it called it was like i something like it's a, a piece of mac software instead of a restaurant i forget what it was <laughs> called um but uh it was interesting they asked me 11 times if i really wanted it spicy and i could just see they were kind of beat down offering their authentic food and then being told uh well do you have orange chicken and, you know, oh, that's too spicy for me. These places, they must have a certain audience, but this place had already kind of been beaten down into, you know, making its food more generic, which was sad. And where, what's, what, what suburb? Uh, it was, I think it was Hoffman Estates, or it was close oh. to out there. It was one that uh, Kessler had written about when Chicago Mag did a piece on things to go in the go to in the suburbs. So, oh, okay. Like the, the, the Algonquin Trail of, you know, food to eat on out, you know, heading out that way, starting yeah, at Mitsua place, and going further west. Right. There's a place called Noodle Deli that I did a thing on um, in, I think it's technically Hoffman Estates, but, you know, a strip mall, very hidden, terrible signage, uh, windows blocked out like a Korean restaurant, but it's Chinese. And it's the same people who have um, a little stall in the um basement food court in Chinatown and the, is what the, you know, the time I'm talking about Richmond, Richland Hill, Richland, the Richland center. Yes. And they've got a, they've got noodle deli out in Hoffman estates and it's fantastic. You know, it's four kinds of hand cut noodles. You know, nobody knows about it unless you do a story on it, but just those little treasures and they love seeing people, you know, driving out there and, and eating their food. Um, it's, it's great. I just, I wish that it wasn't so far from my house. Yeah. I also wish that restaurants were actually open. We're kind of talking about fantasy land at this point by yeah, you're right. talking about all these things, but I hope, you know, we hope the day will come back right now. It's just kind of like a really, really long winter that, that killed everything for two months. Maybe it'll come back. Yeah. You know, and I, and would you think about like takeout? You know, I, I think, one of the other things I'm having a hard time with, as I talked about earlier, how expensive it can be if you keep ordering takeout, is it just doesn't travel well. Like, I, you know, I, yeah, I like the burger at, at Smith, but I don't want to have it with fries 15 minutes after it's 20 minutes after it's made. Things just don't travel. Anything fried, certainly I would never order to go. Um, but I, you know, I think pizza suffers after 10 minutes steaming in a box. I think a lot of things just do not travel well. I, some people have kind of figured out how to reheat, like the like the Alinea stuff. Really good instructions how to preheat the oven. And I, my brother-in-law told me that Bayless's stuff microwaves well. They give you tips on how to do yeah. tortillas, like steam, you know, in a microwave wrapped in a wet towel, that kind of stuff. 
but most things just don't travel well. And you're still spending the good money on food that comes in a uh, recyclable, uh, you know, takeout container. It's just, it's not very, it's the pleasure isn't there. I'd rather cook. And I've been cooking a ton. Yeah, I've been cooking a lot too. And some things, I mean, like a burger, I'm just going to make a burger on the, on the grill. I know how to make yeah. a burger. Um, either that or I'll go get one from Red Hot Ranch, which is literally a six-minute drive from my house. So, And I'd pick up ground beef or something from Public and Quality Meats, you know, and then and do something. It just, yeah, there's just too much. There, I'd rather support a local farm farmer or business with the takeout and then prepare it myself at home, I think. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to ask. So, yeah, what have you, what have you been cooking? Um, lots of vegetables. I've been getting some stuff, uh, from Mick Klug. Uh, I, I usually don't think about it until Monday or Tuesday and you need a two day heads up. So on Thursdays, they'll do a pickup from rare bird preserves in Oak park. So I'll just make the drive out there on a Thursday and pick up some stuff from Klug and tons of asparagus, lots of greens, um, green garlic ramps. Uh, I'm really getting excited when the fruit starts coming in in a few weeks and I'll probably end up doing an ABC piece, you know, from my kitchen on something with strawberries. Um, those are kind of funny because I set up like my iPhone on a tripod and I you know, put it in the oven and I do some kind of weird angled camera stuff. But uh, whatever I'm getting from Klug is great. Um, I picked up some stuff from Irvin Shelley's because I just did a story about those guys and, you know, knew about them but didn't really order from them in the past. And so I'm going to get a box from them. I got some great local produce from uh, the Real Good Stuff Company. Uh, and again, it's this time of year, it's, it's ramps and asparagus. My kids are getting a little tired of that, but, um, I use my oven a ton. I do, I roast any kind of vegetable. Uh, I made, let's see, I made chicken stock, which I don't do very often, but you know, I've got the time now. So I'll, uh, I'll poach that chicken and then I'll make great chicken salad with QP mayonnaise and lots of fresh lemon and vinegar and, um, tarragon and make a chicken salad. And then um, I've got this fantastic stock, and I made risotto last week. I had a bunch of arborio rice sitting in my cabinet, and I made a risotto with uh, the chicken stock that I made. Um, I really – I sort of like this game. I'm like, look at my fridge. What do right. I have to get rid of? <laughs> Yesterday – oh, this was a great one. I had a bunch of mushrooms that I had um, that I got from one of those CSA boxes. And I remember – this is crazy. Do you remember that restaurant um, – it's, it used to be Maud, I think. It's Kelly was the female chef there. She was a food wine oh, okay. yeah. chef. And we were it's talking the, like it's the Violet Hour space. Yes, yes. So I remember I did a story with her years ago, and she made mushroom toast. And I've never forgotten most of this recipe. And it's essentially just sautéing mushrooms with garlic and thyme, and then a little bit of chicken stock, very slowly, and then adding a little bit of heavy cream at the end to kind of enrich it. And then I made bread because I've been posting a lot of stuff on making bread at home. And so I made some really good bread that I had um, and put that in the uh, saute pan, kind of both sides and toasted it. And then just plated this sort of beautiful cream enriched sauteed mushrooms on this toast. And that was my dinner the other night. Huh. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. I don't know. My kids would look at toast with mushrooms on it and say, so what else are we having? <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know my kids are they're pretty good they don't complain too much um but then you know the next thing I, I picked up a skirt steak from public and quality meats and we had beautifully grilled skirt steak and charred onions and um rice so yeah, yeah. mixing it up but yeah i i've been getting creative and um there like one time i made nachos for lunch so we're not really getting fancy here 
Yeah. Well, I've been using it as an opportunity to go through all the cookbooks that I've bought and never cooked from. Um, and really, and exploring some things. Like, I've, I've probably three times had the urge to cook, you know, to really get to know Japanese food and bought a book, and that's as far as it went. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we really did it. I mean, I, I made uh, soba noodles with, you know, duck breast, you know, sliced neatly and stacked in the on top of the noodles in the bowl. And I made okonomiyaki one day, which is a little too much like making pancakes at IHOP. i got to find a better recipe for okonomiyaki. Um but uh, yeah, the problem is that you get you wind up owning new things. Like now, I have Kewpie mayo and tonkatsu sauce in my fridge, and <laughs> I'm going to have to make more okonomiyaki just to use it up. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's great, it, you know. It is great going through that. We have been through all the Otolenghi books because my older son, you know, really wants to eat healthy. A notion that has completely skipped the younger one by. And uh, so you know, we make vegetarian entrees we make you know salads with different kinds of things and then there's a great salad like spinach and dates and almonds and all that stuff that we make a lot so i'm going through all that i have to say the shopping for the produce and admittedly we're not that far into the season yet but i have not yet figured i haven't cracked how to efficiently get stuff from green city or the farmer's market far uh you know the direct purchases from farmers i don't know how it always seems like yeah there's a three-day wait and i have to download some new app to be able to do it i just want to like place an order the only place that just let me place an order was local foods yeah you could do it with um the real good stuff company they used to be the real good juice i think and they sort of pivoted their name so they they are i did a story on this a few weeks ago they're buying from uh, several farms so you can get your dairy and your produce and your proteins all in one place. Because you're right, you don't want to piecemeal it. So I look at somebody like that who's kind of aggregating and then getting lots of different farms brought to them, like in 50-pound bags. And then you can do your little separate order from Real Good Stuff Company. Okay. Yeah, I need to do that. It would be a real shame not to start doing it when the really good stuff hits in the next couple of weeks. I do have a CSA, but it doesn't start until sometime in June. So. Right. Those scare me. Those just scare me because like, you know, I, you get that box and you don't want to waste any of it. You're like, Oh man, I got to do something with lots of, lots of lettuce right now. Yeah. I, uh, I did it several years ago and I wasn't wild about it because yeah, I mean, I'm feeding at the time, like 10 year old and a seven year old and I get uh, three jalapenos and a kohlrabi. I was like, good, go now, go make dinner now. Yeah. And the, the one that I do now, it's called, uh, Urban Autism Solutions. They have a little farm down in the medical district. And I just did it last year because I knew the people involved and I thought it'd be nice. But I was really happy with it. And things were portioned in a way that was fairly practical and I actually could make meals. Admittedly, we did eat an awful lot of eggplant parmesan in oh. August. Um, but that's okay. I learned how to make old school eggplant parmesan and the kids tolerated it. You know, they were. I just, they were, I, that's good. I just bought, you know, Ryan Poley is back in town and he's selling pasta. And yesterday at the Edgewater uh, market, he was selling eggplant parmesan, which ah. of course I bought. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like that idea. I, I think that, you know, you should also look at meal kits. Like we do every other week or so, we'll get a blue apron 
and it's the, they're always tasty. And they're not a sponsor of mine, by the way, uh, but we always think they're tasty and there's no waste, um, and it's uh, pretty delicious. I don't know. I like you know shopping for myself out of the, for to the recipe from the cookbook. You know, I look at some of these things and it's cool that chefs are doing these things, but it's like all the work that I want from the chef is being put on me. So I might as well just make what I want. I don't know why I have to basically grocery shop from these restaurants. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I like you know, you've inspired me. I really should do. I've got the Otolenghi book sitting here, and it's like, why haven't I cracked that open? And um, I've looked at uh, – you're right. I've got these books, and I should be shopping to make these recipes. And I just – yeah, there is no perfect way to do it, I guess, but I should yeah. just start tackling them. No, but that to me is the positive side of this, and I'm trying to teach my kids to cook. I want them to not live off Wendy's, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. And so, and they're into it, you know, each one doing something kind of different. The the younger one has has like the Munchies cookbook. So his first time, you know, I say pick us pick us some things to make for dinner, and it's like donuts. Uh, you know, I was like, um, let's go through this together. But, uh, but the, you know, they're both starting to pick up skills. So, I mean, that's, that's good. That's the positive part. And we, and neither of them does it so much that they get irritated with it. Um, it's not like, oh, I guess it's time for me to go to my job now. You know, they're, they're okay with it. So. No, I think that's one of the, the good byproducts coming out of all this craziness is that people are going to be exposed to more cooking at home at every age level and at cooking from home and, and, and homemade meals will become more a part of the norm, I think, and maybe at least more part of the regular rotation. Yeah. I wonder so how it's going to change how I think about food, you know, as a, as a food writer though. I mean, I won't know till we go back to it, but will I want to, for a few years, I've just been, Oh, there's a new restaurant. I'm going to go check that out right now. And will I care as much? I know. I think about that too. It's like, you know, I, desperately miss i think chandra wrote about you posted something yeah. a link that she had written i just you know you miss that sound and that feeling and that the vibe you get from being in a restaurant and in eating a meal sharing a meal with somebody and I, I do miss that and i always like you get excited about it. oh there's a new place i want to go check it out but i don't see that i just can't even imagine what that or when that's going to be again it, probably not until there's a vaccine right yeah, I, mean, it just, I don't know. To get ex to get excited to go to a place where there's 25 percent capacity, and even that, you know, I don't think restaurants are going to open under those circumstances. I don't think they're going to be able to make it financially. It doesn't make sense to open up with 25 to 50 percent capacity. So I I don't see that happening. I was thinking about that with fat rice because I remember Abe told me early on that everyone told him his kitchen was too big. He you know, and he said, "Well, I crammed every seat I could into it, but I got to have this room to make what I want to make." And now you're going to tell him he can have 25% of that? You know, of course he's he's going to look at that and say, those numbers don't work. We have to do something else. Yeah. I, I have not ordered that uh, I haven't either from yet. them yet. I'd like to. But again, I, I'd say it's 100 bucks, I think, minimum, right? Or 100 bucks yeah. for the super value. I mean, I'll do it at some point. It's just uh, I mean, good for them for, for figuring out a way, hopefully – or they're trying something rather than waiting and waiting and waiting for it to go back to normal. Cause you're right. You're not going to get 40 people into that restaurant again. Yeah. I think one of the things with them is too, like a lot of these meal kits are aimed for two people. They're aimed for a couple with no kids and right. you'll do that with your wife, but you know, are you going to buy a hundred dollars worth of food to feed your six year old? Um, 
that's where yeah. my choices have definitely been ones where it makes sense for four people. So, well, this is the thing, you know, we're all figuring it out. Like, you know, you and I are figuring out like, how are we going to cover stuff and what are we going to write about? And then they're figuring out like what makes sense from a business perspective and how to keep the lights on and also stay within an industry that they're passionate about. But again, those people are, they love the hospitality aspect. They love feeding people. I'm not sure how exciting it's going to be to just keep delivering food and bags to the curbside. Um, although I did talk briefly to Barry Sorkin at Smoke because we picked up from there on Friday. You know, they like this carryout model. They don't really necessarily love running that restaurant. And it's it's tight as it is. It's going to be difficult for them to reopen that dining room. But they, you know, they're still selling a lot of barbecue out the back door um, and putting it in people's cars. I'm just not sure how many restaurateurs and chefs are going to keep up with you know, the, the thought of just preparing food and then sort of wordlessly handing it to somebody to hand to somebody else. And that's the, the whole exchange. I mean, I think some chefs thrive on, you know, seeing people's faces, you know, and, and hearing the din of people, you know, in a dining room. And so I, I we're all trying to figure it out. There's just, And the sad thing is we just don't really know when it's going to end and when it's going to go back to that, if ever. Well, let's uh, switch to another thing about that which is you know we've just been talking about the beard nominations that we didn't do that well in and stuff like that and i think we're going to come to a real question of how do you even define a restaurant what what's a great restaurant when right now it's it's all takeout and then we don't know what the experience is going to be like and you know is a is are people going to want to travel to chicago to eat our eat at our restaurants and then uh you know diss them later which appears to be mainly what happens uh you know all that stuff it's all in question well i don't think people are going to want to go to new york anytime soon yeah and um i i honestly don't think you're going to see any awards for the next year or so um 50 best that i'm a part of 50 best restaurants you know they are not announcing any of the restaurants uh this year and i don't know they say they're going to do a ceremony a year from now, but if people are not going to restaurants, you cannot, like you say, you can't have a beard award for a restaurant people aren't going to. And uh, that whole thing is up in the air. And it does feel weird. I mean, yes, you want to absolutely recognize restaurants and, and get people excited about going to visit them. But again, you can't go visit these restaurants. So it's this double-edged sword. I, On one hand, you want to honor the industry, but on the other hand, it doesn't really feel right right now to do that um and back to your point about just chicago getting dissed yeah it's it's awful i mean not just the from the like you mentioned the food writing thing um but getting no nominations in in journalism getting just the really the regional nominations that we always get and one or two with the drink i mean i i love lost lake like you do but you know how is kamiko not in there and um how is it just how is galit not in there and how is Jiang not in there and like you know, who's, or, yeah yeah thought, i mean just uh, i don't understand it um and it doesn't help probably that you know we have a regional uh, awards chair we don't have anybody living in chicago that's on the regional awards for the restaurants i mean joseph hernandez was at the tribune and he moved to brooklyn and he still has the job and um you know and he he's really good about asking people in chicago but i i think you need to have somebody in chicago uh frankly, but uh, I don't know. They, they don't seem to mind. No, it's, it's a hard thing. I mean, I wrote about this in BuzzList a bit heatedly, 
But yeah, I mean, we we've had this huge effort to bring people to Chicago to to show them a really good time. You know, Kevin Bame talks about how when he went to New York as a nominee the first time, everybody was like, "Yeah, what? Who are you? Who cares?" And you know, we throw all these parties, and the net result is everybody sneers at at our restaurants. Well, that's a critical judgment. They're entitled to do that. Um, but I feel like there's a sort of familiar, familiarity breeding contempt here that when they, the same people go to you know, Cincinnati, it's like, oh, wow, Over the Rhine is so cool, just because you haven't seen it before. You haven't been there before. We've always gotten the, kind of the short end, I think. And um, I, I don't know why. Maybe it's, it's because when these visitors come, they really don't venture out much beyond River North and, and West Loop. That's kind of what I'm guessing. Um, and they don't go to Avondale and they don't go to Pilsen. Um, you know, SKY, I think, deserves a lot more publicity. So does um, Tai Dang. And yeah. they just don't get it nationally. And I don't get it. Like, I, and I just don't think the writers from New York, and they're usually based in New York, that either freelance or are on staff for these publications, go beyond the same. It's like, you know, back to the pizza argument. Not to bring it all back to pizza, but like you come to Chicago for pizza, you probably don't get beyond River North and the West Loop, and that's a shame too. So that's part of the problem. And you know, you and I, have, we've tried as other writers and tried to get visitors to get a little adventurous and go beyond the, the comfort zones, and they just they don't, or they don't. Maybe they don't have the budget to come here anymore and really write a story like you should be able to write a story. But it doesn't stop them from having a firm opinion <laughs> that Chicago's not interesting anymore. Although you know Julia Kramer, who's from the northern suburbs, um, and she writes a she's a bon appetit. She wrote a beautiful piece about cellar door provisions. Yeah, uh, yeah. last year. That which was is great. great. Well, and that's the thing. I wish we had more conversation about it because I do think we suffer a little bit of, you know, hometown insular thinking about this stuff. There's not a really lively debate. I was just talking about this with Kessler. And I'm saying, you know, what we don't have is anyone who thinks Paul Kahn is a fraud. You know, it's like right. we'd have a lively debate if there was one guy who was convinced that Paul Kahn knows nothing and can't cook and everybody else thinks he's great. We all agree on who's great. We all agree Paul Kahn's great. So there's not that liveliness of of intramural debate. And if there were people from the outside talking about it more, I love Kramer's piece just because it, I mean, I love, I like Celador provisions. I've been to Celador provisions. I've had the, the tasting menu dinner there, which I think is now just a la carte. Um, it's nice. I mean, it's really nice. It wasn't in my head as one of the best places. I mean, I would say fat rice instead of Celador or whatever, but she yeah, made, but you a, know, it, she made a great case for it and it made me think yeah. about it in a new way. And that's great. Yep. Yeah, it also sort of fits that bill of the, what, what Bon Appetit tends to write about in terms of style of restaurant. That and that's sort of okay. Twee, yeah. That's great. That's <laughs> great. Um, but we don't have enough of those voices here. Uh, you know, we don't – there's not like a controversial Jay Rayner type you yeah. know, writing about restaurants in Chicago. And if there were, people would probably come here and go, well, I want to check out that place for my own. You know, they, you know, all they read about is, you know, another story about Alinea, which gets a lot of international press and – there aren't many other restaurants that, you know, get the international sort of buzz and it just that bums me out. It's a shame. Yeah, no, things don't break through. I mean, it's one of the things I really liked about Fat Rice was that it broke through to be kind of our David Chang, you know, Momofuku, uh, to be our um, 
Now I'm blanking on it. What's the famous one in San Francisco? The, the Mission Chinese. You know, Mission, to, yeah. to be our equivalent of that place that was hip and different and doing its own thing with, with Asian food. Um, New York Times breaking story worthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yep, and there's, yep. there's another thing that they went, you know, when they had a story to tell about shifting to the, the meal kits, they went to New York to tell it because they can. And New York is still yeah. the capital of the world. And, but also because who would have given it, you know, who would have done it justice here and gotten the reach? Right. I mean, the Tribune probably would be the biggest name, but I think a lot of their, I don't know their demographics, but I'm guessing are mostly suburban. And therefore, it doesn't make as much sense for sort of that hipster Logan Square sort of niche Macanese restaurant to go to that outlet. Right. And also, I mean, they've just never been that fond of fat rice. I mean, I think individuals would be, I'm sure Nick Kendallsberger likes it just fine. But Vitell only ever gave it two stars. It managed to make, yeah. you know, number 22 on his best 50 restaurants while never having had more than two stars. So, really? Oh, that's yeah. That's no, he's never too. re-reviewed it and given it a higher rating or anything. So, huh, well, that's your answer right there. That's why they went to Brett Anderson. Yeah. So, uh, the world of restaurants. Please come back. Please be better to Chicago. All those things. Yeah, I really wish. I don't know what it's going to take, um, but you know, we need to have some. Maybe we need to have a little controversy here to stir things up. Maybe we need more of those Kessler pieces. <laughs> but then we all just, you know turned against him uh yeah yeah. i didn't turn against him i mean i thought he raised some good points that and goes back to the fact that most writers in chicago do not write anything critical yes you know there aren't a lot of critical voices here you know i disagree with a lot of what he said but i agree that you know he needed to raise some points um like the you know why aren't more korean barbecues cooking over live charcoals you know no one ever says that i thought that was great yeah, but you know, most people tend to write gushing stuff in Chicago. I think. Yeah, no, that was the thing. So much of it was we're going to stand up for our Asian restaurants. How dare this guy, you know, insult our Asian restaurants? And not really looking at what he was talking about. And I knew that that was unfair because I'd been with him to all these Asian restaurants, like all the Korean stuff up up in Morton Grove that we'd gone up to and things like that. And I knew what he was looking for. And he was saying that, you know, what's old and tired is old and tired. And that's just a fact sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was sort of, you know, we we definitely have a booster mentality a lot of times. Yeah. Well, again, I think since the world has changed, though, it will be a very different playing field um, in terms of how we talk about restaurants nationally. And I think we just have to wait and see, unfortunately, um, what's going to shake out. But yeah. What's on the other side of this? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, we're going to lose 20% of our restaurants no matter what. I mean, I, I really worried about the little beautiful places like parachute and giants that have a unique voice that just, I don't know how long they can weather this because you know, they're not, they don't have huge money behind them like a Ruth's Chris or right. hot belly. Yeah. And those are the kind of places that we need to make, to keep Chicago an interesting place to eat. Right, or just the little, you know, the little Korean or Thai place that had a few good, few things that were really outstanding, and they'll just quietly disappear, and that was the end of that. And yeah, it always, gonna, and it always happens. I mean, there's always some evolutionary pressure on restaurants, and this is 
going to be an extreme example of that. But still, it's going to be sad. There are things that we are going to miss. Yeah, without a doubt. But we'll just keep talking about them. Yeah. All right, on that cheery note, we probably both need to make lunch for our kids or something like that. So It's so funny. You've mentioned that my son is kind of looking at me through the, the glass window. It kind of, like, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> Thanks for listening to Food Eater Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. And thanks to my guest, Steve Delinsky. Oh, and be sure and check out Fat Rice. I hear it's good. Now if I could just get the editor of Bon Appetit on my podcast. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Please subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.